Rebekah came forth and fulfilled these conditions. So here Elijah tests this woman to see if she is kind and benevolent. Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Just as Eliezer considered that only one possessed of kindness would be a fit companion for his master's son, so Elijah was convinced that only a liberal-minded person would be likely to sustain him in a time of famine and drought. He called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Observe the gracious and respectful demeanor of Elijah. The fact that he was a prophet of Jehovah did not warrant him to treat this poor widow in a haughty and overbearing manner. Instead of commanding, he said, I pray thee. What a rebuke does that contain for those who are proud and obtrusive. Civility is due to everyone. Be courteous, 1 Peter 3.8, is one of the divine precepts given to believers. And what a severe test it was to which Elijah submitted this poor woman to fetch him a drink of water. Yet she did not hesitate, nor did she demand a high price for what had become a costly luxury. No, not even though Elijah was a complete stranger to her, belonging to another race. Admire here the moving power of God, who can draw out a human heart to acts of kindness unto his servants. And as she was going to fetch it, yes, she left off gathering sticks for herself, and at the first request of this stranger started for the drink of water. Let us learn to imitate her in this respect, and be always ready to perform an act of kindness toward our fellow creatures. If we do not have the wherewithal to give to the distressed, we should be the more ready to work for them. Ephesians 4.8 A cup of cold water, though it cost us nothing more than the trouble of fetching it, shall in no wise lose its reward. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. Verse 11 This the prophet requested in order to test her still further. And what a test! to share her very last meal with him, and also to pave the way for a further discourse with her. Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. What a selfish request this seemed! How likely it was that human nature would resent such a demand upon her slender resources! Yet in reality it was God that was meeting with her in the hour of her deepest need. Therefore will the Lord wait, that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Isaiah 30:18. But this widow must first be proved, as later another Gentile woman was proved by the Lord incarnate. Matthew 15. God would indeed supply all her need, but would she trust him? So often he allows things to get worse before there is any improvement. He waits to be gracious. Why? to bring us to the end of ourselves and of our resources, till all seems lost and we are in despair, that we may more clearly discern his delivering hand. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise, and behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Verse 12. The effects of the terrible famine and drought in Palestine were also felt in the adjacent countries. In connection with oil being found in this widow's possession at Zarephath in Zidon, J.J. Blunt, in his admirable work, Undesigned Coincidences in the Old and New Testament, 
has a helpful chapter. He points out that on the division of Canaan, the district of Zidon fell to the lot of Asher, Joshua 19.28. Then he turns the reader back to Deuteronomy 33, reminding him that when Moses blessed the twelve tribes, he said, Let Asher be blessed with children, let him be acceptable to his brethren, and let him dip his foot in oil, verse 24, indicating the fertility of that district and the character of its principal product. Thus, after a long spell of famine, oil was most likely to be found there. Hence, by comparing scripture with scripture, we see their perfect harmony. Behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Poor soul, reduced to the last extremity, with nothing but a most painful death staring her in the face. Hers was the language of carnal reason, and not of faith, of unbelief, and not of confidence in the living God. Yes, and quite natural in the circumstances. As yet she knew nothing of that word to Elijah, Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Verse 9. No, she thought the end had come. Ah, my reader, how much better is God than our fears? The unbelieving Hebrews imagined that they would starve in the wilderness, but they did not. David once said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. 1 Samuel 27.1 But he did not. The apostles thought they would drown in the stormy sea, but they did not. Were half the breath in sorrow spent, to heaven in supplication sent, our cheerful song would oftener be, Hear what the Lord hath done for me. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but an handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Verse 12. To natural sight, to human reason, it seemed impossible that she could sustain anyone. In abject poverty, the end of her provisions was now in sight, and her eyes were not on God, any more than ours are, till the Spirit works within us, but upon the barrel, and it was now failing her. Consequently, there was nothing before her mind except death. Unbelief and death are inseparably joined together. This widow's confidence lay in the barrel and the cruise, and beyond them she saw no hope. As yet her soul knew nothing of the blessedness of communion with him to whom alone belong the issues from death. Psalm 68.20 She was not yet able against hope to believe in hope. Romans 4.18 Alas, what a poor tottering thing is that hope which rests on nothing better than a barrel of meal. How prone we all are to lean on something just as paltry as a barrel of meal. And just so long as we do so, our expectations can only be scanty and evanescent. Yet, on the other hand, let us remember that the smallest measure of meal in the hand of God is to faith as sufficient and effectual as the cattle upon a thousand hills. But alas, how rarely is faith in healthy exercise. Only too often we are like the disciples when, in the presence of the hungry multitude, they exclaimed, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? John 6, 9. That is the language of unbelief, of carnal reason. Faith is not occupied with difficulties, but with him with whom all things are possible. Faith is not occupied with circumstances, but with the God of circumstances. Thus it was with Elijah. 
as we shall see when we contemplate the immediate sequel. And what a test of Elijah's faith was now supplied by those doleful words of the poor widow. Consider the situation which now confronted his eyes. A widow and her son starving, a few sticks, a handful of meal, and a little oil between them and death. Nevertheless, God had said to him, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. How many would exclaim, how deeply mysterious, what a trying experience for the prophet. Why, he needed to help her rather than become a burden upon her. Ah, but like Abraham before him, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith. He knew that the possessor of heaven and earth had decreed she should sustain him, and even though there had been no meal or oil at all, that had in no wise dampened his spirits or deterred him. O my reader, if you know anything experimentally of the goodness, the power, and faithfulness of God, let your confidence in him remain unshaken, no matter what appearances may be. He who hath helped thee hitherto will help thee all thy journey through, and give thee daily cause to raise new Ebenezers to his praise. Behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Let it be duly noted that this woman did not fail to discharge her responsibility. Up to the very end she was industrious, making use of the means to hand. Instead of giving way to utter despair, sitting down and wringing her hands, she was busily occupied gathering sticks for what she fully believed would be her last meal. This is not an unimportant detail, but one which we need to take to heart. Idleness is never justified, least of all in an emergency. Nay, the more desperate the situation, the greater the need for us to bestir ourselves. To give way to dejection never accomplishes any good. Discharge your responsibility to the very end, even though it be in preparing for your final meal. Richly was the widow repaid for her industry. It was while she was in the path of duty, household duty, that God, through her servant, met with and blessed her. Chapter 8 The Lord Will Provide in that which is now to be before us, we are to behold how the prophet conducted himself in quite different surroundings and circumstances from those which have previously engaged our attention. Hitherto we have seen something of how he acquitted himself in public, his courage and spiritual dignity before Ahab, and also how he acted in private, his life in secret before God by the brook, obedient unto the word of the Lord, patiently waiting his next marching orders. But here the Spirit grants us a new view of how Elijah conducted himself in the home of the widow at Zarephath, revealing as it does most blessedly the sufficiency of divine grace for God's servants and people in every situation in which they may find themselves. Alas, how often the servant of God, who is uncompromising in public and faithful in his secret devotions, fails lamentably in the domestic sphere, the family circle. This should not be, nor was it so with Elijah. That to which we have just alluded calls perhaps for a few remarks, which we offer not by way of extenuation, but of explanation. Why is it that the servant of God is often seen to far less advantage in the home than he is in the pulpit or the closet? In the first place, as he goes forth to discharge his public duties, he is keyed up to do battle against the enemy but he returns home with his nervous energy spent to relax and recuperate. 
than it is that he is more easily upset and irritated by comparative trifles. In the second place, in his public ministry, he is conscious that he is opposing the powers of evil, but in the family circle he is surrounded by those who love him and is more off his guard, failing to realize that Satan may use his friends to gain an advantage over him. Third, conscious faithfulness in public may have stimulated his pride and a thorn in the flesh. The painful realization of sad failure in the home may be necessary to humble him. Yet there is no more justification for God-dishonoring conduct in the domestic circle than in the pulpit. In our last chapter, we reached the point where Elijah, in response to Jehovah's orders, had left his retirement at Cherith and had crossed the desert and had duly arrived at the gates of Zarephath, where the Lord had secretly commanded a widow woman to sustain him. He encountered her at the entrance of the town, though in circumstances which presented a most unpromising appearance to carnal sight. Instead of this woman joyfully welcoming the prophet, she dolefully spoke of the impending death of herself and her son. Instead of being amply furnished to minister unto Elijah, she tells him that a handful of meal and a little oil in a cruise was all she had left. What a testing of faith! How unreasonable it seemed that the man of God should expect sustenance under her roof. No more unreasonable than that Noah should be required to build an ark before there was any rain, still less any signs of a flood. No more unreasonable than that Israel should be required simply to walk round and round the walls of Jericho. The path of obedience can only be trodden as faith is exercised. And Elijah said, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said. 1 Kings 17.13 What a gracious word was this to quiet the poor widow's heart. Be not afraid of the consequences, either to yourself or to your son, in making use of the means to hand, scant though they be. But make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and thy son. Verse 13 What a severe testing was this! Was ever a poor widow so sorely tried before or since? To make him a cake first was surely in her extreme circumstances one of the hardest commands ever given. Did it not appear to issue from the very essence of selfishness? Did either the laws of God or of man require a sacrifice like this? God has never bidden us do more than love our neighbor as ourselves. Nowhere has he bidden us to love him better. But here, make me a cake first? For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. Verse 14 Ah, that made all the difference. That removed the sting from the request, showing there was no selfishness inspiring the same. She was asked for a portion of that which she had remaining, but Elijah tells her she need not hesitate to bestow it, for although the case seemed desperate, God would take care of her and of her son. Observe with what implicit confidence the prophet spoke. There was no uncertainty, but positive and unwavering assurance that their supply should not diminish. Ah, Elijah had learned a valuable lesson at Terah, learned it experimentally. He had proved the faithfulness of Jehovah by the brook, and therefore was he now qualified to quiet the fears and comfort the heart of this poor widow. Compare 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, which reveals the secret of all effective ministry. 
Observe the particular title here accorded deity. The woman has said, As the Lord thy God liveth, verse 12, but this was not sufficient. Elijah declared, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, This Gentile must be made to realize the humbling truth that salvation is of the Jews. John 4.22 The Lord God of Israel, of whose wondrous works you must have heard so much, the one who made a footstool of the haughty Pharaoh, who brought his people through the Red Sea dry-shod, who miraculously sustained them for forty years in the wilderness, and who subdued the Canaanites for them. Such a one may surely be trusted for our daily bread. The Lord God of Israel is he whose promise never fails, for the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent or change his mind. 1 Samuel 15.29 Such a one may be safely relied upon. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. Verse 14 God gave her his word of promise to rest upon. Could she rely upon it? Would she really trust him? Note how definite was the promise. It was not barely, God will not suffer thee to starve, or will surely supply all your need. Rather was it as though the prophet had said, The meal in thy barrel shall not diminish, nor the oil in thy cruise dry up. And if our faith be a divinely sustained one, it will cause us to trust in God's promise, to commit ourselves unreservedly to his care, and to do good unto our fellow creatures. But observe how faith must continue in exercise. No new barrel of meal was promised or furnished, just an undiminished handful, seemingly an inadequate quantity for the family, but quite sufficient with God. Until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth, evidence the firm faith of the prophet himself. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. Verse 15 Who can forbear exclaiming, O woman, great is thy faith? She might have advanced many excuses to the prophet's request, especially as he was a stranger to her, but great as the test was. Her faith in the Lord was equal to it. Her simple trust that God would take care of them overcame all the objections of carnal reason. Does she not remind us of another Gentile woman, the Syrophoenician, a a descendant of the idolatrous Canaanites, who long afterwards welcomed the appearance of Christ to the borders of Tyre, and who sought his aid on behalf of her demon-distressed daughter? With astonishing faith, she overcame every obstacle and obtained a portion of the children's bread in the healing of her daughter, Matthew 15. Would that such cases moved us to cry from our hearts, Lord, increase our faith, for none but he who bestows faith can increase it. And she and he and her house did eat many days, and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord which he spake by Elijah. Verses 15 and 16. She was no loser by her generosity. Her little supply of meal and oil was but sufficient for a single meal, and then she and her son must die. But her willingness to minister unto God's servant brought her sufficient not only for many days, but until the famine ended. She gave Elijah of the best she had, and for her kindness to him God kept her household supplied throughout the famine. 
How true it is that he that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. Matthew 10.41 But all of God's people are not granted the privilege of succoring a prophet, yet they may succor God's poor. Is it not written, He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay again. Proverbs 19.13 And again, Blessed is he that considereth the poor, the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. Psalm 41.1 God will be no man's debtor. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail. Here again we have exemplified the fact that the receiving of God's blessing and obtaining of food, in figure spiritual food, is the result of obedience. This woman complied with the request of God's servant and great was her reward. Are you, my reader, fearful of the future? Afraid that when strength fails and old age comes you may be left without the necessities of life? Then suffer us to remind you that there is no need whatever for such fears. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, temporal necessities, shall be added unto you. Matthew 6.33 O fear the Lord ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. Psalm 34.9 No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Psalm 84.11 but note well that each of these promises is conditional. Your business is to give God the first place in your life, to fear, honor, and obey him in all things, and in return he guarantees your bread and water shall be sure. Is there a reader inclined to reply, Such wholesome counsel is easier to receive than to act on. It is simpler to be reminded of God's promises than to rely upon the same. Someone else may be disposed to say, Ah, you know not how distressing are my circumstances, how dark the outlook, how sorely Satan is injecting doubts into my mind. True, yet however desperate your case may be, we would earnestly beg you to think upon the widow of Zarephath. It is most unlikely that your situation is as extreme as hers, yet she perish not of starvation. He who puts God first will always find him at the last. Things which seem to be acting against us Work together for our good in his wondrous hands. Whatever be your need, dear friend, forget not Elijah's God. And she and he and her house did eat many days. Here we see Elijah dwelling safely in the humble abode of this poor widow. Though the fare was frugal, yet it was sufficient to preserve life in the body. There is no hint that God provided any variation of diet during those many days nor any intimation that the prophet became dissatisfied with being required to eat the same kind of food over so long a period. This is where we obtain our first glimpse of how he conducted himself within the family circle. Blessedly did he exemplify that divine precept, having food and raiment, let us be there with content. 1 Timothy 6.8 And from whence does such contentment proceed? From a submissive and peaceful heart which rests in God subjection to his sovereign pleasure, satisfaction with the portion he is pleased to allot us, seeing his hand both in providing and in withholding. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail. Certainly the widow had no cause to complain of the severe testing to which her faith had been put. 
God, who sent his prophet to board with her, paid well for his table by providing her family with food while her neighbors were starving and by granting her the company and instruction of his servants. Who can tell what blessing came to her soul under the edifying conversation of Elijah and from the efficacy of his prayers? She was of a humane and generous disposition, ready to relieve the misery of others and minister to the needs of God's servants, and her liberality was returned to her a hundredfold. Unto the merciful God shows mercy, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye ministered to the saints and do minister. Hebrews 6.10 And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail. Let us now endeavor to look higher, lest we miss the lovely type which is to be found here. The meal is certainly a divinely selected figure of Christ, the corn of wheat that dried, John 12.24, being ground between the upper and nether millstones of divine judgment, that he might be unto us the bread of life. This is clear from the first few chapters of Leviticus, where we have the five great offerings appointed for Israel, which set forth the person and work of the Redeemer. The meal offering of fine flour, Leviticus 2, portraying the perfections of his humanity. It is equally clear that the oil is an emblem of the Holy Spirit in his anointing, enlightening, and sustaining operations. It is a most blessed line of study to trace through the scriptures the typical references to the oil. As the little family of Zarephath was not sustained by meal or oil alone, but the two in conjunction, so the believer is not sustained spiritually without both Christ and the Holy Spirit. We could not feed upon Christ, yea, we would never feel our need of so doing were it not for the gracious influence of the Spirit of God. The one is as indispensable to us as the other, Christ for us, the Spirit in us, the one maintaining our cause on high, the other ministering to us down here. The Spirit is here to testify of Christ, John 15:26, yea, to glorify him, John 16:14, and therefore did the Savior add, He shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. Is not this why the meal, three times over, is mentioned first in the type? Nor is this the only passage where we see the two types combined. Again and again, in the beautiful prefigurations of the Old Testament, we read of the oil being placed upon the blood. Exodus 29:21, Leviticus 14:14, 14, 14, etc. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail. There was a steady increase and supply of both according to the mighty power of God working in a continuous miracle. Is there not a close parallel between this and the Savior's supernatural increasing of the five barley loaves and the two small fishes while the disciples were distributing and the multitude eating? Matthew 14 verses 19 and 20. But again we would look from the type to the antitype. The meal continued undiminished, the supply unabated, and the meal pointed to Christ as the nourisher of our souls. The provision which God has made for his people in the Lord Jesus remains the same throughout the centuries. We may come to him again and again, and though we receive from him grace for grace, yet his fullness, John 1.16, continues the same yesterday, today, and forever. Neither did the cruise of oil fail, 
foreshadowed the grand truth that the Holy Spirit is with us to the very end of our pilgrimage, Ephesians 4.30. But let us point out again that God did not give a new barrel of meal and cruise of oil unto this family at Zarephath, nor did he fill to the brim the old one. There is another important lesson for us in this. God gave them sufficient for their daily use, but not a whole year's supply in advance or even a week's provision all at once. In like manner, there is no such thing as our laying up for ourselves a stock of grace for future use. We have to go constantly to Christ for fresh supplies of grace. The Israelites were expressly forbidden to hoard up the manna. They had to go out and gather it anew each morning. We cannot procure sufficient sustenance for our souls on the Sabbath to last us throughout the week but must feed on God's word each morning. So too, though we have been regenerated by the Spirit once and for all, yet he renews us in the inner man day by day. 2 Corinthians 4.16 According to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. Verse 16 This illustrates and demonstrates a vital principle. No word of his shall fall to the ground, but all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began, Acts 3.21, shall surely be accomplished. This is both solemn and blessed. Solemn because the threatenings of the Holy Writ are not idle ones, but the faithful warnings of him that cannot lie. Just as surely as Elijah's declaration, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word, verse 1, was fulfilled to the letter, so will the Most High make good every judgment he has denounced against the wicked. Blessed, because as truly as the widow's meal and oil failed not according to his word through Elijah, so shall every promise made to his saints yet receive its perfect accomplishment. The unimpeachable veracity, unchanging faithfulness, and almighty power of God to make good his word is the impregnable foundation on which faith may securely rest. Chapter 9. A Dark Providence Change and decay in all around I see. We live in a mutable world where nothing is stable and where life is full of strange fortunes. We cannot and we should not expect things to go on smoothly for us for any length of time while we are sojourning in this land of sin and mortality. It would be contrary to the present constitution of our lot as fallen creatures, for man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Neither would it be for our good if we were altogether exempted from affliction. Though we be the children of God, the objects of his special favor, yet this does not free us from the ordinary calamities of life. Sickness and death may enter our dwellings at any time. They may attack us personally or those who are nearest and dearest to us, and we are obliged to bow to the sovereign dispensations of him who ruleth over all. These are commonplace remarks we know. Nevertheless, they contain the truth of which, unpalatable though it be, we need constant reminding. Though we are quite familiar with the fact mentioned above and see it illustrated daily on every side, yet we are reluctant and slow to acknowledge its application to ourselves. Such is human nature. We wish to ignore the unpleasant and persuade ourselves that if our present lot be a happy one, it will remain so for some time to come. But no matter how healthy we be, how vigorous our constitution, how well provided for financially, We must not think that our mountain is so strong that it cannot be moved. Psalm 30, verse 6 and 7. 
Rather must we train ourselves to hold temporal mercies with a light hand and use the relations and comforts of this life as though we had them not. 1 Corinthians 7.30 Remembering that the fashion of this world passeth away. Our rest is not here, and if we build our nest in an earthly tree, it should be with the realization that sooner or later the whole forest will be cut down. Like many a one, both before and since, the widow of Zarephath might have been tempted to think that all her troubles were now over. She might reasonably expect a blessing from entertaining the servant of God in her home and the real and liberal blessing she received. In consequence of sheltering him, she and her son were supplied by a divine miracle in a time of famine for many days, and from this she might draw the conclusion that she had nothing further to fear. Yet the next thing recorded in our narrative is, And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. 1 Kings 17.17 The language in which this pathetic incident is couched seems to denote that her son was stricken suddenly and so sorely that he expired quickly before there was opportunity for Elijah to pray for his recovery. How deeply mysterious are the ways of God. The strangeness of the incident now before us is the more evident if we link it with the verse immediately preceding. The barrel of meal wasted not. Neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord which he spake by Elijah. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman fell sick, etc. Both she and her son had been miraculously fed for a considerable interval of time, and now he is drastically cut off from the land of the living, reminding us of those words of Christ concerning the sequel to an earlier miracle, Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, and are dead. John 6.49 Even though the smile of the Lord be upon us, and he is showing himself strong on our behalf, this does not grant us an immunity from the afflictions to which flesh and blood is the heir. As long as we are left in this veil of tears, we must seek grace to rejoice with trembling. Psalm 2.11 On the other hand, this widow had most certainly erred if she concluded from the snatching away of her son that she had forfeited the favor of God and that this dark dispensation was a sure mark of his wrath. Is it not written, For whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receiveth? Hebrews 12.6 Even when we have the clearest manifestations of God's good will, as this woman had in the presence of Elijah under her roof and the daily miracle of sustenance, we must be prepared for the frowns of providence. We ought not to be staggered if we meet with sharp afflictions while we are treading the path of duty. Did not Joseph do so again and again? Did not Daniel? Above all, did not the Redeemer himself? So too with his apostles. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. 1 Peter 4.12 Let it be duly noted that this poor soul had received particular marks of God's favor before she was cast into the furnace of affliction. It often happens that God exercises his people with the heaviest trials when they have been the recipients of his richest blessings. Yet here the anointed eye may discern his tender mercies. Does that remark surprise you, dear reader? Do you ask how so? 
why the Lord in his infinite grace often prepares his children for suffering by previously granting them great spiritual enjoyments, giving them unmistakable tokens of his kindness, filling their hearts with his love, and diffusing an indescribable peace over their minds. Having tasted experimentally of the Lord's goodness, they are better fitted to meet adversity. Moreover, patience, hope, meekness, and the other spiritual graces can only be developed in the fire. The faith of this widow, then, must needs be tried yet more severely. The loss of her child was a heavy affliction for this poor woman. It would be so to any mother, but it was more especially severe on her, because she had previously been reduced to widowhood, and there would now be none left to support and comfort her in declining years. In him all her affections were centered, and with his death all her hopes were destroyed. For coal was now indeed quenched, 2 Samuel 14.7, for none remained to preserve the name of her husband on the earth. Nevertheless, as in the case of Lazarus and his sisters, this heavy blow was for the glory of God, John 11.4, and was to afford her a still more distinguishing mark of the Lord's favor. Thus it was, too, with Joseph and Daniel, to whom we have alluded above. Severe and painful were their trials, yet subsequently God conferred yet greater honor upon them, all for faith to lay hold of the afterward of Hebrews 12.11. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance, and to slay my son? Verse 18. Alas, what poor, failing, sinful creatures we are! How wretchedly we requite God for his abundant mercies! When his chastening hand is laid upon us, how often we rebel instead of meekly submitting thereto, instead of humbling ourselves beneath God's mighty hand, and then begging him to show wherefore he is contending with us, Job 10.2, we are far readier to blame some other person as being the cause of our trouble. Thus it was with this woman. Instead of entreating Elijah to pray with and for her that God would enable her to understand wherein she had erred, Job 6.24, that he would be pleased to sanctify this affliction unto the good of her soul and enable her to glorify him in the fires, Isaiah 24.15, he reproached him. How sadly we fail to use our privileges. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance, and to slay my son? This is in striking contrast with the calmness she had displayed when Elijah first encountered her. The swift calamity which had befallen her had come as a sore surprise, and in such circumstances, when trouble overtakes us unexpectedly, it is hard to keep our spirits composed. Under sudden and severe trial, much grace is needed, if we are to be preserved from impatience, fretful outbursts, and to exercise unshaken confidence in and complete submission to God. Not all of the saints are enabled to say with Job, Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? The Lord, the Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 2.10 and 1.21 But so far from such failure excusing us, we must judge ourselves unsparingly and contritely confess such sins unto God. The poor widow was deeply distressed over her loss, and her language to Elijah is a strange mixture of faith and unbelief, pride and humility. 
It was the inconsistent outburst of an agitated mind as the disconnected and jerky nature of it intimates. First she asked him, What have I to do with thee? What have I done to displease thee? Wherein have I injured thee? She wished that she had never set eyes on him if he was responsible for the death of her child. Yet second, she owns him as thou man of God, one who was separated unto the divine service. She must have known by this time that the terrible drought had come upon Israel in answer to the prophet's prayers, and she probably concluded her own affliction had come in a similar way. Third, she humbled herself, asking, Art thou come to me to call my sin to remembrance? Possibly a reference to her former worship of Baal. It is often God's way to employ afflictions in bringing former sins to our remembrance. In the ordinary routine of life, it is so easy to go on from day to day without any deep exercise of conscience before the Lord, especially so when we are in the enjoyment of a replenished barrel. It is only as we are really walking closely with him, or when we are smitten with some special chastisement of his hand, that our conscience is sensitive before him. But when death entered her family, the question of sin came up, for death is the wages of sin. Romans 6.23 It is always the safest attitude for us to assume when we regard our losses as the voice of God speaking to our sinful hearts and diligently to examine ourselves, repent of our iniquities, and duly confess them unto the Lord, that we may obtain his forgiveness and cleansing. 1 John 1.9 It is at this very point that the difference between an unbeliever and a believer so often appears. When the former is visited with some sore trouble or loss, the pride and self-righteousness of his heart is quickly manifested by his, I know not what I have done to deserve this. I always sought to do what is right. I am no worse than my neighbors who are spared such sorrow. Why should I be made the subject of such calamity? But how different is it with a person truly humbled? He is distrustful of himself, aware of his many shortcomings, and ready to fear that he has displeased the Lord. Such a one will diligently consider his ways. Haggai 1.5 Reviewing his former manner of life and carefully scrutinizing his present behavior so as to discover what has been or still is amiss that it may be set right. Only thus can the fears of our minds be relieved and the peace of God confirmed in our souls. It is this calling to mind our manifold sins and judging ourselves for them which will make us meek and submissive, patient and resigned. It was thus with Aaron who, when the judgment of God fell so heavily upon his family, held his peace. Leviticus 10.3 It was thus with poor old Eli who had failed to admonish and discipline his sons. For when they are summarily slain, he exclaimed, It is the Lord, let him do what seemeth him good. 1 Samuel 3.18 The loss of a child may sometimes remind parents of sins committed with respect to it long previously. So it was with David when he lost his child by the hand of God smiting it for his wickedness. 2 Samuel 12 No matter how heavy the loss, how deep his grief, when in his right mind the language of the saint will ever be, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. Psalm 119.75 Though the widow and her son had been kept alive for many days, miraculously sustained by the power of God, whilst the rest of the people had suffered, 
Yet she was less impressed by the divine beneficence than by his taking away her child. What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou coming to me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? While she seems to acknowledge God in the death of her son, she cannot shake off the thought that the prophet's presence was responsible for it. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.